And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, which has other amazing podcasts like Entrepreneurs on Fire, hosted by John Lee Dumas. Entrepreneurs on Fire stokes inspiration and shares strategies to fire up your entrepreneurial journey and create the life you've always dreamed of. Check out some of the recent episodes, eight tools of improv comedy that you can use in work and life, how to turn your Instagram into a money-making machine, how to build a seven-figure side hustle without quitting your full-time day job, and overcoming the beast of depression as an entrepreneurial leader. If these topics are interesting for you, you definitely have to check out Entrepreneurs on Fire wherever you download your podcast. Today, my guest is John Climaco. He is the CEO of CNS Pharmaceuticals. He has 15 years experience in leadership roles at various healthcare companies, including EVP at Permafix Medical, president and CEO of Axial Biotech, a DNA diagnostics company. Throughout building his career, throughout building all these companies, he's developed partnerships with Medtronic, Johnson & Johnson, Smith & Nephew. Currently, he's building CNS Pharma. They're a drug, uh, drug development company. They focus on developing novel treatments for primary and metastatic cancers of the brain and nervous system. So they are trying to cure cancer. They have a lead drug candidate that they are uh, taking to market from the ground up, going through all the clinical trials, all the phases of regulatory approval. Uh, this particular drug, uh, Berubicin, is proposed for the treatment of GBM. It's an aggressive and incurable form of brain cancer. Basically, before this drug was around, there was a good chance that if you got GBM, there was no treatment option, you would be going uh, you would be going uh, to hospice and you would most likely pass. So he is creating a drug. He's taking a drug to market to basically give people that have GBM a chance to live. Uh, so he walks through his origin story, uh, why he pivoted from rock climbing into law, into building healthcare companies. Uh, we speak about the problem that he's solving at CNS Pharma um, and the entire business strategy required to build uh, a drug, uh, a drug development company, the, the entire business strategy required to take a drug to market, including the regulatory, um, the marketing, the sales, the pricing strategy. It's incredibly complex, um, but he is an evangelist for, for CNS Pharma. He's, a, he's an evangelist for the work they do, the drugs that they put forward because they can actually save lives. So he's going to walk through how he builds a drug development company and takes a drug to market uh, from inception all the way through to something that, in this particular case, an oncologist can use for a patient. So let's jump right into it. This is, uh, this is John Climaco. He is the CEO of CNS Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I had a, I had kind of an interesting path, uh, circuitous path to get here. You know, I, I didn't dream of being a pharmaceutical executive. I dreamt of being a climbing guide. And uh, when I graduated from college, that's what I did uh, for six years uh, all over the world. I was a alpine climbing guide, so I took clients, you know, all over the world: South America, Himalayas, um, Alps, all over North America, and uh, and I loved it. Um, but uh, you know, I found after a while that it was really hard on my body and, um, and I wasn't getting quite the mental stimulation that I wanted. So, you know, I did what everybody did, uh, what many people in my family did. I went to law school. I practiced law for about uh, seven years. And uh, one of my clients came to me one day with an idea for a medical device that he had uh, wanted to license to Medtronic. 
and he didn't know anything about licensing, he didn't know anything about business, uh, and that's what I had done with emerging growth companies and securities law for about seven years. So I called that, uh, that was the meeting that ended up eating my career because um, after a few years, I was no longer practicing law. I was running the company that we started. We uh, raised a whole bunch of venture capital. Um, we raised a bunch of money from Johnson & Johnson, from Medtronic, uh, from Smith & Nephew, and we developed uh, the first molecular diagnostic test in the orthopedic industry. It was a test to predict uh, kids who were diagnosed with scoliosis, whether they would ultimately need surgery or not. And uh, it was fascinating. It was, uh, you know, learning uh, on the job. I mean, I had done that kind of work for other people as an attorney, but, uh, but I had never done it uh, for myself. And so sometimes I say, you know, if I'm any good at this job, it's because I hit every pothole that you can hit, uh, made every mistake that you can make, uh, learned from those hopefully, and, uh, and grew. Uh, I went on from that after we sold that company. I sat on a number of boards and... Uh, you know, all that School of Hard Knocks uh, experience was really helpful because I got tapped by a few hedge funds to help with some very difficult turnaround projects, small public companies that were headed for zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes we were successful, sometimes we weren't. But, um, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. And, uh, and then after doing that for a few years, uh, a colleague that I had met uh, at one of those turnarounds, uh, I had become friends with the management team, and uh, which is unusual uh, in those circumstances. And and uh, he uh, introduced me to uh, Dr. Valdemar Prebe, who's the founder of CNS Pharmaceuticals. And um, and you know I had really come to appreciate uh, through all this experience the uh, the kind of uh, virtue of the simple, elegant ex uh, solution to a problem. And Dr. Prebe uh, was tackling one of the biggest problems in oncology, which was a real, uh, you know, a carrot for me. I love challenges. That's why I uh, became a climbing guide and I've been doing that for my whole life. I just, I love that kind of thing. And, um, and he was trying to solve uh, the problem of glioblastoma, which is the most common and deadly form of primary brain cancer. Uh, it's essentially a death sentence for people who get it. You know, it doesn't matter if you're uh, Joe Biden's son or if you're Ted Kennedy or if you're the head of MD Anderson Cancer Center, if you get glioblastoma, you're probably gonna die. Uh, 60 years of trying to treat this disease, we've hardly moved the needle at all. And Dr. Prive came up with what I thought was a, just a brilliant, elegant solution when he created the molecule that we work on called Barubicin. And uh, it's the first drug of its kind to cross the blood-brain barrier and actually demonstrate a response uh, and improvement in the condition in human beings with, uh, with glioblastoma. So, you know, I, I, I love that kind of outside the box, I hate, you know, that phrase, but just really that's what it was here. You know, Dr. Freeman was looking at this problem that everyone else had looked at from one way. He looked at it a totally different way and, uh, and seemed to hit pay dirt. So uh, we started the company about four years ago. We took it public about two years ago. And, uh, you know, we're executing a, a, a pivotal trial here uh, for this really exciting drug. And it's... Uh, it's awesome. I love it. Every day is a new challenge, you know. Every day is a new that's incredible. You know, problems to Congratulations. solve. Congratulations. That's that's right. super incredible. Like that's incredibly impressive. Thank you. Very Thank very you. Inter very interesting. And this is so. Before before this uh, particular drug that, uh, and I want to understand where the company is at, right sure. now. And I want to understand like some thoughts that you have about how you even like build a company in this space that is again so so disruptive to everything else that's already existing but before before this company what was the was there a de facto treatment was there anything at all because you're yeah, literally like curing cancer at this point right that's, it's a great, you know to, yeah that's it it's a great question so um there are a couple of drugs that are used there's a drug called temozolomide um it's an alkylating agent uh, that's how it works and it's basically uh it's the standard of care around the world but What's interesting about uh, temozolomide, or sometimes it's called TMZ, is that it's only effective in 60% of, uh, excuse me, 40% of, of patients. So 60% of patients have a genetic predisposition that renders the drug ineffective for them. Their body will repair the damage that uh, temozolomide drug does to the cancer cells faster than it can kill them. So imagine that situation, right? The standard of care, it's approved, it's used here, it's used in Europe. Um, it's used all over the world, but only four out of ten people get any benefit from it at all. And it's so, uh, it's so bad, uh, the standard of care today, that 
you know, I said it's used in Europe, but it's only used in Europe in those 40% of patients that, uh, you know, ha have that genetic profile that will allow it to work. The 60% of patients that, mm. that don't, uh, those patients go from radiation to hospice. There's no chemotherapy at all for those people. And uh, the first time I heard that, it was, it was, I had to ask, I was in Poland where we do a lot of work. I was talking to one of the leading researchers there. We were talking about their treatment protocols. And I said, so, you know, walk me through your protocol. And she said, well, you know, for the, for the methylated patients, that's what this predisposition is called. We give them surgical resection. So we try to remove as much of the tumor as possible. Then uh, we treat them with radiation. And then we treat them with temozolomide. I said, okay, that sounds like the US protocol. What about the unmethylated patients? She said, well, we stop at radiation and then we send them to hospice. And I just said, can you say that again? I want to wow. make sure I heard. Yeah, we stop at radiation, then we send them to the hospital. So six out of 10 patients, they have radiation. They're, almost all of those patients will reoccur, and then they go to hospice uh, to pass. And, uh, you know, it still sends a chill through me to, to hear that today in 2021 that this, you know, it's it's a rare cancer, but it's not so rare. Um and, and most of those patients uh, have no chance at all. They have no drugs that work for them. And so, you know, we are, we are trying to change that. And I think we've got something that could change that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, it's sad when you realize the, the reality. That's um, because I don't think anybody who, ha you know, thank God that nobody in my immediate vicinity has gone through that. Um, but I don't think if, if anybody in your family or your friends or your peer group haven't gone through that, I don't think they realize uh, that this is essentially a death sentence. I think that there's always some sort of uh, notion that there can be some sort of um, there can be some sort of treatment or cure, or at least an attempt. But yeah, that's true. So, so, so you're saying, sixty percent of people do not qualify out the gate, and then of those sixty percent, of those forty percent, obviously you're not going to have a hundred percent success rate. So that's the numbers right. are like. The numbers are devastating. In fact, the 40% yeah. that, that respond to treatment with temozolomide, they will almost 100% of those will have a reoccurrence of the disease. And that's the point that we're shooting at, which is the recurrent disease. So we're not going against temozolomide. Temozolomide, you know, works as a first line therapeutic, but there's nothing approved for secondary or refractory cases. Those are the ones that recur. And since almost mm -hmm. everyone will reoccur, uh, there's a large market opportunity, but more importantly, there's a huge clinical opportunity. And, and really in this disease, it's about extending life. We call it either progression-free survival, which means you, you, know, you haven't eliminated the tumor, but it's no longer growing, or the holy grail is overall survival. And that's the primary endpoint of our currently conducting uh, uh, trial that we have going on in the United States and Europe basically to demonstrate, <clears throat> as we believe, that berubicin will improve overall survival. And that's really the, the, the mark that, that the FDA and the EMA want to see. Do people live now, long with this drug? Of, of course, yeah. Um, and now, the way that you mentioned, it's like a, a simple, elegant solution that looks at the problem through a different lens, and that's what's allowing it to be effective. And is this like the IP, the proprietary, uh, the proprietary lens that this is being looked at through, is this something that could transcend just this particular disease or this particular it could. Uh, it issue? Could. So there's a lot of different opportunities um, in metastatic disease. And go in, go into that a little bit. So yeah, that, I will. So, so people so, understand like exactly how it works. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, so let me back up and talk about the molecule itself. So it's called berubicin, and this is... Um, you know, yeah. technically what it is, is it's a synthetic obenzylated analog of a drug called doxorubicin. Doxorubicin is an anthracycline. Anthracyclines are a class of drugs that have been around for 60 years. Uh, they're first-line therapeutics for all kinds of cancers. They're breast cancer, ovarian cancer, testicular cancer, lung cancer, kind of you name it, doctors will reach for anthracyclines because they've been around for a long time. They're extremely effective. They're very potent cytotoxic, so they're very poisonous drugs, but they're very effective at killing cancer. And you know the side effect profile, um, the toxicity profile, it's all very well understood. So when I heard that, that uh, Dr. Prebe was using an anthracycline for glioblastoma, I was immediately excited because I, I love the idea of using something that's tried and true. 
you know, one of the things that I learned in my first uh, uh, company when we were developing molecular diagnostics, and it was really at the beginning of that, is that it's much easier to develop new technology, particularly in the medical space, than it is to get physicians to adopt it and change the way they do business. Because you've got to remember that every piece of technology, you hand it to a physician, a clinician, an oncologist in this case, the decision to use it comes down to that person standing in a room with a very sick, terminally ill patient in their family, trying to decide, is this drug going to extend their life? And they don't have a lot of life left, so they don't have a lot of time to make wrong choices. And anything you can do to make that decision based on confidence and experience, I think you're gonna have a more successful outcome for your drugs. So in this case, six decades of use with this class of drugs gives oncologists tremendous confidence that they understand what this molecule does, how it does it, and how to use it. So what's so special about this and why hasn't, you know, why haven't oncologists been using you know, anthracyclines against glioblastoma for years? The problem is the blood-brain barrier. And that's this specialized network of endothelial cells that surround your brain and they create the most privileged sanctuary in your body, which means it's basically impossible to get harmful substances across that barrier into your brain for obvious reasons, right? Because your brain is the, you know, the central computer for the whole system, so you don't want anything in there that could damage it. The problem with that when you're treating brain cancer, whether it's primary or metastatic disease, is that the blood-brain barrier typically pumps out or blocks harmful substances like chemotherapy agents faster than they can be pumped in. So they can't get into the brain, or if they do, you have to flood the body with such a high concentration that you make the patient sicker before you can actually treat the cancer. So what did Dr. Uh, what did Dr. Prebe do? So Dr. Prebe took this molecule, this uh, this doxorubicin molecule, and he created an analog of it with a benzyl group attached to the central glycone ring that's at the sort of the center of this molecule. And what doing that doing that procedure did two things basically. Number one, it changed the molecular weight of the compound, and that helped it cross the blood-brain barrier more efficiently. But most importantly, it created a, a molecule that's highly lipophilic. That means it has an affinity to a fat-rich environment. And the brain is the fattiest environment in your body. And so this molecule now has a natural affinity and it will pass the blood-brain barrier very efficiently in high concentration. So that's the first step in what I call this sort of elegant, simple solution because for decades, people have been chasing a new mechanism of action. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own cost and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. 
I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Action specific to glioblastoma. Dr. Prebe said, let's treat glioblastoma as if it functions like other tumors. Let's just get something that we know works against other tumors into the place where it might work against GBM. So that was the first step. 
But the cool second step is that this is called a topoisomerase 2 inhibitor. So remember I said tembozolamide is an alkylating agent. That's how it works. This is a topoisomerase 2 inhibitor. So topoisomerase 2 is an enzyme that is produced in cells that assists in the cleaving of the double strand of DNA so that those strands can separate and then the cell can divide and, and replicate. Now, in the adult brain, the only cells that are going to overexpress that enzyme, that is cells that are rapidly dividing, are of course tumor cells, which means that, that uh, berubicin is going to not only pass the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain, but it's going to have selective uptake into tumor cells that are overexpressing the enzyme against which it works. So it's a really elegant and simple, I don't mean to downplay the, you know, the complexity of what it took to discover this and to build this molecule, but when I look at it, I say, okay, mechanism of action that's well understood, been around for decades, take that molecule, change it in a way that allows it to pass through the blood-brain barrier, and when it gets in there, it's going to do what other anthracyclines do. It's going to disrupt that topoisomerase 2 enzyme process and destroy those cells by inhibiting their ability to replicate. So that's, that's how it works. Um, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating molecule. It was the subject of a really successful phase one study uh, where almost four, uh, 49% actually of patients uh, who received the drug and had not been treated uh, with another drug called Avastin, which is sometimes used uh, against glioblastoma, but can have a detrimental effect on subsequent chemotherapy. 49% had a uh, response, uh, a treatment effect response to this drug. Several patients had their tumor shrink, and one patient had his tumor uh, completely disappear. We call him a durable, complete response because he's been around for 14 years after treatment with this drug, which is absolutely unheard of in glioblastoma. Um, you know, I've met this guy, had dinner with him a couple of times, fascinating guy, and just, you know, sort of slams home the idea that this is a human being that simply would not be here, would not be with his family, would not be productive in doing the cool things that he does um, were it not for this molecule. So that's the kind of thing that drives us, you know, every day. So, so where, where is this drug at now in terms of somebody actually being able to eventually use it? Because you've done clinical trials. So help me understand that process too, because I'm incredibly curious about the, the business around taking a drug like this to market so that it can be yeah. widely accessible. Oh, it's complicated. Um, I, I, have no, I have no doubt it's complicated. <laughs> it's a long process. So basically, the process starts with preclinical work, which Dr. Prebe did extensively. Then you go to <clears throat> what's typically called a phase one study. And that's basically to look at toxicity, side effects, and try to determine the maximum tolerated dose that a human can, can tolerate. Now, you typically don't look for efficacy in, in that phase. You're really just looking for, do people tolerate the drug? Is it safe? Well, in this phase one, we saw efficacy. I gave you some of the statistics there. It was really remarkable. We had incredible response rates. So what we did with that data is that was the data on which we used uh, to take the company public along with our trial design and uh, for, the, for the phase two slash three, because that's really what we are. We, we decided based on the fact that we had efficacy data, we took a little bit different approach. I said to the team, look, I, I don't wanna spend you know, a ton of money on a phase two study that's really just designed to show that the drug has efficacy because we already know it has efficacy from the phase one. So I would like to understand how do we get this drug approved? So we were fortunate um, to have a significant consultation with FDA, and, and we brought an original trial design to them that had one endpoint. They came back and they told us that they strongly suggested that we change that endpoint to overall survival, because that was, as they put it, the only approvable endpoint for drugs attacking GBM. So we changed our study design. That meant changing the statistical power, the design, the number of patients, all sorts of things like that. That took months and months and months. Simultaneous to that, we were manufacturing the drug. As I said, this is a cytotoxic, so it's an extremely potent poison. You don't want to touch this stuff. You don't want to breathe it, certainly. You definitely don't want to eat it unless you have cancer. So there's only a few places in the world that can actually manufacture uh, this material safely. 
we were manufacturing both, uh, we had some components of the drug in Europe and some in the US last year. Uh, the pandemic hit and the borders closed. Uh, we suddenly found ourselves with, you know, two pieces to the puzzle in different jurisdictions. So we had to quickly switch gears, uh, start a batch in the US, continue the batch in Europe. We ended up with batches in both jurisdictions, which we have now, which has actually been a great benefit. Um, and then we took all of that, we brought it to the FDA uh, in thousands and thousands of pages of application called an IND, which stands for Investigational New Drug. And um, you apply to the, uh, to the FDA basically based on all of your data that you have on the drug, plus all the information on the drug that you've manufactured. And you're essentially asking permission to use this investigational new drug in human beings. So they gave us that permission and we started the trial uh, last year and uh, we dosed our first patient in September of last year. Uh, we have quite a few patients on, on study right now. And uh, we have, uh, I think, 40 centers open in the United States and Europe. And we're kind of rapidly expanding across Europe and the United States um, more centers to make sure that it's you know, available to as many patients as possible. And they're enrolling in our clinical study, which is a very strict protocol because you, know, you, you want at this stage, <clears throat> one of the heartbreaking things about this is you want to get the drug into as many people as you possibly can because we believe this is a life-saving medication. However, in order to produce the cleanest data possible for approval, you really have to be very, very strict in terms of the inclusion criteria for patients and the exclusion criteria. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we unfortunately have to turn away a number of patients if they've either had too many prior therapies, they have complicating conditions, um, et cetera, et cetera. But when we get the right patients in place, we enroll them with their clinician, oncologist, uh, wherever they may be in the, in the country, uh, we have sites all over the place, and uh, and then we follow them through a very strict dosing regimen, uh, you know, w collecting all the data that we can along the way. And eventually that data uh, will be compiled, analyzed for statistical significance, and if we see that the drug uh, is having a positive treatment effect, we will apply to the FDA uh, for an NDA or a new drug application, and then hopefully we'll have it on the market. And and since and there's what is, not what is the time frame? Well, the time frame, so we've got a couple of big milestones, basically. So this year, we're just building out the trial. That's really our main goal this year is to acquire as yeah. many patients as possible. We expect, our forecast now tells us that in the first half of next year, we should reach uh, what we call our interim analysis point, and that's between 30 and 50% of patients on study for six months. And we will not stop the trial at that point, but what we will do is analyze everything that we have and we will determine either the drug is having treatment effect and we'll proceed with the trial or, the, or it's not having treatment effect and we will consider either changing the protocol or, or terminating the trial. And then after that, uh, we will complete the trial. Uh, we expect to complete enrollment probably in late next year or, or early the following year, compile the data, and we might be looking at an NDA submission in late 2024, something like that. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. So I was thinking about the shortest day of the year earlier. While technically we have the same amount of time as every other day, the lack of daylight makes it feel so much shorter, which is kind of the same feeling as working with disconnected tools. Our workday is the same length as always, but before we know it, we spent three hours manually fixing something that is quote unquote automated. Thankfully, HubSpot's all-in-one connected CRM platform serves as a single source of truth for managing customer relationships across marketing, sales, service, and operations, meaning all of your team's data is truly connected. With multiple hubs, over a thousand integrations, and an easy-to-use interface, HubSpot helps you spend less time managing your software and more time connecting with your customers. Plus, with a quick and easy onboarding process, your teams can get started quicker than even the shortest day of the year. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better at HubSpot.com. You're, you're mentioning uh, something along the lines of because there isn't uh, any precedent for this kind of drug, but I, I cut you off by accident. So okay. what was what was the uh, what was the point on yeah, that? Yeah, so basically, you know, the the um, so the bar regulatory the regulatory bar is always high. I mean, there's no question about it, right? It has to be safe and effective, and you have to prove that. Um, and we're doing that now, but. A disease like this that is almost uniformly fatal and on a secondary or refractory basis has no approved uh, uh, treatment whatsoever anywhere in the world, 
the, the bar is about as low as it can get. We, we don't have to prove necessarily that we're better than anything else because there isn't anything else. We have to prove that it's safe and effective, um, meaning that it has positive treatment effect for the patients and it's safe for them. So, so we feel like we've chosen the right regulatory strategy here. Um, we definitely have a fantastic trial design. I think uh, you know it's been reviewed by some of the best biostatisticians and uh, neuro-oncologists in the country. It's absolutely state-of-the-art, and um, I, I love what we're doing. Uh, the patients love it as well. You know, we've really designed a patient-centric trial with things like uh, patient concierge to make sure that, especially during COVID, you know, patients that come in, they want to participate in the trial. You know, we have a service that, you know, they'll pick them up in a safe transport from their home. They'll bring them to the treatment center. They'll make sure everything is taken care of, all the paperwork, et cetera. If they have to travel to a center, they'll take care of all the travel arrangements for them. We try to make it as smooth as possible because, you know, the sad fact is, uh, I mean, in the four years that I've uh, been working for CNS, uh, you know, almost all the patients that I've spoken with, and I've spoken with a lot, uh, they've almost all passed away. And, uh, and it's, it's not an easy passing, it's a tragedy for them and their family. And uh, the fact that they're willing to participate in this trial, I think speaks to both the lack of treatment opportunities, but it also speaks to the spirit in that community of realizing that they are part of something for which there is no solution right now. And even though they are at the end of their lives, they're still trying by participating to not only save themselves, but to create data for the future that may save other people. And so, you know, we try to make it um, as easy for them as possible. And can you walk me through something that I thought was interesting? When I when I was looking into the company and, and, and it, it got me thinking about the addressable market mm -hmm. because some of the points about the company on the website, it speaks about a, a growing addressable market for, for, for cancer and for, for this particular issue. Now, why, why is this market growing? Why is there more of a need? Why are there more cases uh, uh, appearing? Why, why would this market be growing? It seems like the market, from an outsider, it should it should be stagnant. It should be something that yes, there's outside of just population growth. Outside of yeah, that, sure. there shouldn't be more brain right. tumors so, popping up. Right. So that's right. scary so, too. Yeah. So I I think what we we're referring to there is the. Um, is the metastatic market um, you okay. know, and that's the market where you've got you know other tumors so you've got lung cancer that metastasizes to the brain and once that happens uh, okay. you know you've this could got, be this could be used for that's right okay you, you've got the okay. same problem right now you've got this cancer that might have been addressable in the lungs but it's now going to be much more difficult to address it once it's behind the blood-brain barrier so you know we've got uh, you know lots of different cancers that metastasize to the brain um, not a great suite of treatments for those. And so this, this drug has got tremendous potential for that um, as well as, primary, uh, as, as a primary drug. Amazing. So 2024 is, is, is hopefully what you're, you're aiming for. Now, um, you mentioned that there's not, a lot of, um, there's not a lot of competition. There's no other drugs that, that do this. So from, from, like a, from a business perspective, say, say you get the full approval that you need what are the steps to actually make this the de facto treatment? Is it like the second it's FDA, FDA approved, every oncologist uh, gets a notification, an email? Like, I don't know how this whole process works. So what's the actual uh, tactical strategy so that as many people know about this as possible? Sure. So I know they don't just all automatically get an email, so. Right, <laughs> I mean... no, good, 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 good question. Um, so in this space, you know, uh, first of all, it's a pretty tight community of neuro-oncologists around the world uh, that treat this okay. disease. It is a rare disease. There's only 15,000 cases of it a year in the United States. Um, but again, it's almost uniformly fatal. So, you know, I often say about this, this is a funny disease. Um, when I started working on this and talking to people, you know, almost everybody that I, uh, that I talked to had some GBM story, right? And sometimes they were really attenuated. It was their, you know, best friend's aunt's husband died of GBM or something like that. And I thought to myself, why, how do so many people know about this disease? There's only 15,000 cases in a country of 300 million people. What, what's the story? And then one day it dawned on me that, you know, if that same attenuated person had breast cancer, you know, she probably got better. And you probably never mm. heard about it. But if they had GBM, she died. And you remember it because everybody dies from this disease. Almost everyone dies from this disease. So 
in that context, anything that moves the needle significantly diffuses through that community incredibly quickly. Now, separate and distinct from that, you know, we're a drug developer. Um, we don't market drugs. I don't think it's our strong suit. I'm not saying that that is the case forever. Perhaps that could be the case someday in the future. But we think that probably the way to commercialize this is to uh, partner with a company that already has a sales force, that already has expertise in neuro-oncology sales and marketing um, and development. And we bring this molecule to them and allow that engine to help us uh, you know, push it around the world uh, so that patients have as fast an access as possible. We're not overly worried about that step at the moment simply because um, you know, look, while there are, I think there's about 243 different GBM trials going on in the United States right now, so lots and lots of people are studying lots of elements of it, nothing has hit the mark. And when something does hit the mark and, and really move the needle for patients, um, I think it will very rapidly become the standard of care because, again, this is not a disease, and I, you know, I don't mean to minimize, there's all kinds of diseases that aren't fatal that are terrible for people, but this is a disease that the average life expectancy from diagnosis is 14 to 18 months. So every day counts. Uh, if there's something new, you're going to hear about it because if, if you don't, you're, you're going to die. Um, and so we think that the uptake will be very rapid, particularly, again, because of the nature of this drug, right? One of the things, again, I, I said this earlier, but, you know, I, I learned earlier in my career that changing clinician behavior that sort of last half mile in the process of getting a new standard of care, it's as hard as anything else. I mean, we spent in, in developing the molecular diagnostic that I worked on for 10 years, we, we spent five years uh, studying hundreds of thousands of people, creating a massive database, doing statistics for years on this and creating a data set that was so far beyond any individual orthopedic surgeons, anecdotal set or published papers. It was you know, the biggest numbers anybody had ever seen in the space. It still took us years to convince clinicians to change their clinical behavior on the basis of the result of our test. And that was because what we were doing was utterly novel. There was nothing like it in orthopedics. Nobody in orthopedics had ever considered using a, you know, a test. This was just a, you know, a saliva test like we're all used to for COVID. Mm -hmm. Just spit in a tube and it's going to tell you whether you're going to need surgery. Nobody had ever heard of such a thing. It's still in use. It's used very widely now, but it took a very, very long time. In this case, because this is an anthracycline, oncologists, every oncologist practicing in the world today started in medical school understanding what anthracyclines are, how they work, how you don't use them, how you do use them, what their toxicity is, et cetera, et cetera. So they're all familiar with those. It, it's really, you know, what we call sort of old school sledgehammer carpet bombing chemotherapy. You know, anthracyclines mm -hmm. go in and kill cells. That's what they're good at. This is a targeted anthracycline in the, in the organ system that it's in. So we think that that kind of um, familiarity with the class of drugs is going to give people comfort that this is not some, you know, black box uh, you know, again, not to deride immunotherapy, but, you know, immunotherapy has had almost no success in, in GBM or brain cancer, and it's also a bit of a black box, and, it's, and it can be a challenge to trust it. This is a, this is a drug that comes from a well-known class that oncologists are familiar with. We just put it in a place that they've never been able to put it before, and we think that's going to give oncologists a lot of confidence to use it with their patients right away. And I would I would ask a follow up um, in terms another sort of a business question when you when you take this to market how do you balance and this is maybe a tough question but I'm I'm curious your mindset on this how do you balance like the the pricing strategy the business objectives versus the fact that this is a life saving drug that people need to have access to um, how do you balance that pricing discussion because that pricing discussion leads to a lot of like a lot of ethical questions, I guess, because if somebody needs to survive, right? Right. They, they if, if, <clears throat> if it's costing million, I don't know what this costs at all. So I, I have no idea what this type of drug would cost. But if it costs an exceptional amount, then there's no option for them to not go with it. Right. So uh, it's a good question. And it's a challenging question, you know, and faced by lots of companies. And I think um, at the I outset, I would say, you know, we have not, uh, we have not priced this drug. We haven't, uh, you know, really finished modeling those things and looking at it. But I would say, 
our goal overall is to make sure that, uh, first of all, that you know as many patients as possible have access to this drug um, because it is a life-saving drug. Uh, this is a deadly cancer. We certainly don't ever want to see anyone turned away because they can't afford it, um, who would have uh, almost by definition no other option. You know that said, uh, we do have to balance the fact that this drug uh, has cost you know a tremendous amount of money of our shareholders to develop. Uh, you know we're a public company, so we do have an obligation to our shareholders, um, you know, to have a return from them. But I think that we will uh, be able to balance those things effectively. You know, uh, there are strategies for that. There are strategies to assist patients. Uh, you know, with our help, with a partner's help to assist patients that are, you know, in financial difficulty to make sure that they have access to the drug. You know, certainly we uh, plan to be aggressive in terms of our approach on reimbursement and so on. And I think that, uh, you know, for us, again, if we are fortunate to see this drug, uh, it, you know, in an approvable position in a couple of years, well, I think we will be able to have some very, uh, you know, uh, powerful discussions with CMS and with uh, private payers in the sense that, look, um, <clears throat> you know, there really isn't another option for patients. And yeah. this is terminal disease. So, you know, we don't, we, we, you know, we don't intend to hold anyone hostage for that uh, opportunity, of course. Um, but at the same time, you know, we expect, uh, you know, to have a, a fair return for the work that we've put in and the risk that we've undertaken, because it is, it's highly risky to develop drugs like this. You know, this is, GBM is known as a, you know, as a graveyard for biotech companies because almost everything that's, uh, that's tried has failed. And so it's a huge risk for our shareholders to take. And I, I think it's fair to ask uh, that the market accept, a, you know, a fair return for us. But at the same time, you know, the and number then, but one But it's goal... also, you can, you can lobby, like, you can lobby, not lobby, but you can speak to insurance providers and, and, and what, and like, that can be a discussion so that, like... You're championing that. You're making them aware of what this is. Oh, yeah, and, and, absolutely. And, yeah. No question. And, and you know, and I, I mean, I personally have a lot of experience with that. Uh, you know, the last product that I took from kind of cocktail napkin to patient use, um, we did tons of that, tons of medical review boards, tons of discussions with medical directors, explaining to them, the, you know, the the cost benefit analysis of using, you know, a product like that, and so on. And I think, you know, we would probably be doing the same thing. Uh, you know, with Barubison. And, and again, another advantage for us from a business perspective of partnering with a bigger firm uh, that does that type of work, you know, in terms of marketing and sales of drugs like this is their experience in bringing the value proposition to payers, uh, both public and private, so that they understand, you know, what we believe to be the case, which is Barubison is not just going to, you know, be an incremental change, uh, you know, for these patients, but it's going to be a significant life extending and life enhancing medication for them. Amazing. Um, I wanted to, so, uh, last sort of last question that I want to ask you, and then I want to do a couple of rapid fire, but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what's, what's the take What's the mark that you want, that you want to leave on the world that you want CNS to leave on the world? What do you want people to look back and, and associate with your company? maybe with this particular uh this particular um disease or or issue or cancer or maybe a, a broader um a broader narrative or a broader takeaway i'm just curious what you want your legacy to be yeah i mean for the company and for this drug in particular i would love to see people look back in 10 years and say this was the pivotal moment the fulcrum moment in gbm this was when a new approach actually broke through uh, demonstrated extension in progression-free survival and most importantly overall survival for GBM patients with importantly with a curative option you know Barubicin is not going to cure everyone um, but if the chance is there and there's nothing else there why would you not take that chance uh, with this drug I know I certainly would uh, and I would recommend it to my to my loved ones as well so I think if if we could have a legacy, you know, it would be to be able to see those patients, look those patients and their families in the eye in 10 years and say, this drug is here because we brought it here. Um, that would be more important than any money or any other return to me personally. You know, that's what this is all. That's what this is all about. It's it's what the whole it's what it's about for the whole team. It's what it's about for Dr. Prive, who's been working on this drug for 20 years. Um, there's nothing like the ability to say we changed that life, you know, for the better.
Um, that's our that's our legacy. Um, and I think whether it's it's Barubison or the next drug that we work on, it would be the same thing. You know, we, we try to choose a target that's meaningful, uh, that's going to have an impact on people. This is super hard work. It's really risky work. It requires a massive commitment from shareholders. And for all of that effort, you know, it's it's like. I don't know if I go back, you know, to my climbing days. It's like, uh, you know, the stuff that got me off the couch, uh, you know, was the stuff that was beautiful and hard and aesthetic and unclimbed or rare or remote or things like that. The kind of thing that, on a bad day, you know, when everything was going wrong, it was still going to motivate you to keep going. And you know, we have bad days. You know, that you know our stock uh, has taken a beating this last year. And some days you think, God, does anybody even pay attention to the good work we do? And the, what keeps you going is what it is that we're doing, you know, and why we're doing it. Because these are very sick people who have no other option. And uh, boy, if I were in their shoes, I sure would want to know that somebody was fighting for me. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, if people want to connect with you, if people want to go find out about CNS um, social website, where should they go? Uh, yeah, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Our website is cnspharma.com. Um, so we're pretty easy to find if you search us in those ways. Uh, you know, we're traded on the NASDAQ. So wherever you get your financial information, you can just put in our ticker, which is CNSP. And, uh, you know, you'll find all, all kinds of stuff about us all over the place. Okay, amazing. Um... A couple of rapid fire just to pull out some last like career entrepreneurial business insights from you. The biggest challenge that you've overcome in your professional life. What was that? How'd you overcome it? Wow, that's a good question. Um, the biggest challenge, you know, I, I, I think um, I think probably the, one of the biggest challenges certainly was was financing my first company. And um, and it was just an incredible exercise in hearing no. Um, no, and no, and no, and no, and no. I made all the rounds on Sand Hill Road, you know, and in New York and in Europe. And I, I, we had so many funds turn us down. Nobody was interested in what we were doing at all. Diagnostics was so not the flavor of the month, like nobody cared. And nobody cared about our PowerPoints and our interesting technology and our pads and all that. It was just, nope. I had one fund I'll never forget in San Francisco. I walked into their office. The fund manager walked in, he opened up his notebook and sat down and he said, so what are the genes that cause scoliosis? And I said, well, that's actually what we're looking for in this project. He said, so you don't have them yet? And I said, no, not yet. He slammed his notebook, got up and walked out. I was like, oh, how much longer can I do this? You know, but it, only takes, yeah. it only takes one and the first one was Johnson and Johnson. And, you know, it's a pretty good first one. Yeah, it's a pretty good first one, you know, but we kissed a lot of frogs. It was the overnight success that took two years, you know, and, uh, yeah. you know, you just you just have to persevere. You have to believe in what you're doing. And, you know, that's I think I was sort of saying it before. It's what I love about this company. Everyone that is with us and we're a small, tight, almost a family team, but we all just believe in what we're doing. And it's not blind faith. It's based on data that we all understand and our individual piece to the project, but we believe in, in you know, that's what you've got to have because you hear a lot of no's. You see your stock in the red a lot of days. As a public company, you get a lot of nasty emails from shareholders who aren't happy with you. And you just got to have the confidence that what you're doing is the right thing to do. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, I think that's what has, you have to have that attitude when you're building something that's never been done before, because if not, you you can't you can't keep the energy you can't keep the mo like you can't keep that motivation up if you don't that's have that's it you know and, that, and it's not always gonna other work. you know you know it's it's not yeah. always going to work I mean sometimes the ideas that you have are just going to fall fall flat but you know I mean you know what was that great you know quote from you know Thomas Edison he was like oh his first like twelve hundred light bulb tries failed and he was like oh yeah well that I found twelve hundred ways that didn't work. <laughs> You know, it's like, yeah. that's, yeah. what are you going to do? You just got to keep going if you believe in what you're doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you had to choose uh, a person that's been impactful on you, there's probably been many, but pick one. Who was that person and what did they teach you? Hmm. You know, um, I would say probably, um, I know it's a little bit of a cliche answer, but uh, 
probably the most impactful person in my life and my career was my dad. You know, he um, he built. Uh, you know, he 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 was not an entirely self-made guy, but probably as close as you could get. Um, he was an attorney as well. Built his law firm from nothing up to uh, you know big multi-city practice, uh, clients all over the country and everything. And, um, you know, I, I watched uh, some of the same things that I've talked about here and learned from him just watching him, you know, that, that perseverance, that belief that, you know, you know, even if he was the, you know, the David to some huge firm, Goliath, he, he knew what he was doing. He had confidence in himself. He kept going, you know, he survived through the lean and rough times by continuing that belief and persevering and and constantly just bootstrapping himself you know and looking around and and taking measure of what he had achieved even when it didn't feel like it was much uh, there were always things there to be grateful for and happy for you know and and things like that it's it, that keeps me you know we have bad days in the company we have a lot of good days we celebrate those but when we have bad days you know you know, particularly for what we do as a company, you know, I can look around and I know that so many of the patients that I've talked to over the years um, that have passed or are still struggling with the disease would give anything to have one of my bad days um, because they don't have any more days left. And so it gives me, a, I think, a deep sense of gratitude and purpose to keep going uh, with what we're doing because we know that the goal, we think the goal is in reach. The goal is in reach for Barubison. Um, it's our job to bring it there. We owe it to these patients. We owe it to our shareholders and we owe it to ourselves. And, uh, and so, you know, I sort of draw on, on his degree of positive thinking and perseverance and endurance. And, uh, and we keep going, you know, my, my motto that's on my, on the bottom of my email signature is, is, through endurance we conquer. That was uh, Ernest Shackleton's email, if you happen to know that story, but maybe one of the greatest survival stories in history. And uh, mm -hmm. and so, you know, we press on every single day, even though, you know, lots of people would say the odds are against us here. We think we have a great solution that's gonna move the needle in this. Um, it's gonna take a lot more work, but this is the team to do it. And, uh, you know, we couldn't be, more stoked about what we're doing and what we're going to do for these patients. Uh, that gets us out of bed every day, keeps us going all day, and uh, keeps us telling the story because, you know, we think we can change uh, neuro-oncology with this drug, and that's a pretty rewarding thing to be shooting for. Um, a book, podcast, source that you would recommend people go check out that you've learned from, what was it, and, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so I, um, you know, it's an older business book. I mean, I read a ton, but the first one that popped to mind was uh, was the old book, Good to Great. I love that book. Um, taught me the super, you know, guiding principle in there, like focus on what you can do better than anybody else in the world and stick to that. Um, mm -hmm. I think this is the best team to develop a neuro-oncology uh, chemotherapy drug in the world. And, uh, and we've proven that I would challenge anybody to find another company with so few people and as limited resources as we've had to push a drug this complicated as far as we have, as fast as we have. And that is because we are just 100% laser focused on one thing that we know we can do better than anybody else. And that's advance a drug like this through the clinic in into widespread use. Um, Amazing. I think, uh, you know, I actually mentioned, uh, you know, I, I actually mentioned uh, Shackleton a minute ago and uh, the book, uh, it's called Endurance. It's one of my favorite books ever. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Probably the greatest survival story ever, but also the greatest story of just maintaining a positive forward looking attitude to through the longest odds on earth. You know, um, it's it, it just when you read that, uh, you begin to think to yourself, nothing that I'm likely to go through in life could ever possibly begin to compare to what these people went through, you know, and survived and came out the other side. It, it, um, it puts it in perspective, right? It puts everything in perspective. That's it. That's what it's all about. You know, that's what it's all about. Having a little bit of perspective. I mean, we're so lucky to be here doing this. I mean, you know, yeah. This is a dream job, running a public company, doing some something like this that's as good for people as it could be with people that I really love. Um, you know, I can't ask for I can't ask for more than that. If you could tell your twenty year old self one thing, what would it be? Keep going. Keep going. You know, keep going. 
That's the trick. Good. Keep going. My 20 year old self was, you know, guiding and having fun, but not totally sure of where the future was going to go and worried about that. And I would probably just tell him, keep going, just keep going. It'll, it'll sort itself out. And the last question, uh, what does success mean to you? Oh yeah. Success. You know, I mean, success to me means, um, you know, the achievement of goals that are meaningful to you, you know, um, not necessarily to other people. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn Jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn Jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show, 
Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 